cancer industry specifically. It has changed dramatically. The field of biophotonics was just getting started. The first instrument that I bought was a microwave spectrum analyzer. It's time to shed light on our universe. This is All Things Photonics, a podcast about the physical science of light. Join us as we explore the latest in lasers, optics, spectroscopy, and microscopy. Each episode, you'll hear from leading voices from across the photonics landscape. We're brought to you by Photonics Media. This is Associate Editor Joel Williams. Here are this week's top stories. Researchers from IPH and Laser Zentrum Hanover have begun work that seeks to enable laser welding of 3D printed components. The project, titled Koala, aims to develop an expert system that supports small and medium-sized businesses in optimizing additive manufacturing processes so that the printed components may be welded using lasers. Researchers at the University of Liege have advanced the field of space engineering through a newly developed laser-based method for the identification of the contributors and origins of stray light on space telescopes. As the power and as a result imaging capabilities of space telescopes continues to increase, the developed method is poised to help in the acquisition of even finer space images and the development of increasingly efficient space instruments. Researchers at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory have applied neural networks to the study of high-intensity short-pulse laser plasma acceleration, specifically for ion acceleration from solid targets. In most instances, neural networks are used to study datasets. In the current work, the Lawrence Livermore team used them to explore sparsely sampled parameter space as a surrogate for a full simulation or experiment. A combination of OCT, adaptive optics, and neural networks has the potential to enable better diagnosis and monitoring for eye and brain diseases, such as glaucoma, that damage neurons. The combination is part of an AI process developed by biomedical engineers at Duke University as leaders of a multi-institution consortium that can easily and precisely track the number and shape of retinal ganglion cells in the eye. And finally, an artificial retina developed at the University of Sydney may one day restore sight to the blind, according to its creator, Matthew Griffin of the Australian Centre for Microscopy and Microanalysis in the School of Aerospace, Mechanical, and Mechatronic Engineering. The electrical device acts like a retina, using absorbed light to fire neurons to transmit signals. It was created using multicolored carbon-based semiconductors. Up next, news editor Jake Saltzman speaks with forensic spectroscopist Matthew Baudelet about a new laser-induced breakdown spectroscopy method for the chemical analysis of tires. I'm Joel Williams, and you're listening to All Things Photonics. Today's episode is sponsored by Perkin Elmer, a leader in applied chemical and advanced material testing markets. Perkin Elmer provides laboratory instruments, services, software, and consumables worldwide with the knowledge and expertise to help customers gain earlier and more accurate insights and analyses. For more information, visit PerkinElmer.com.
next guest and his group are deploying laser-induced breakdown spectroscopy for an application that may surprise you. Tire chemical analysis, not tire track analysis, but chemical analysis. Matthew Baudelet has served previously as a senior research scientist for the Towns Laser Institute at the University of Central Florida, as a research assistant professor of optics in the Laser and Plasma Laboratory in the Towns Laser Institute, and is a 10-year member of the Society of Applied Spectroscopy. Joins us from Orlando in the University of Central Florida's National Center for Forensic Science. How are you doing, Matthew? I'm good. I'm good. What about you? Excellent. Thank you for being here. So I mentioned in the intro, forensic tire analysis is not an unusual application, though it often involves track analysis. That's, that's maybe more familiar to members of our audience. But the focus of your latest work considers the chemical profile of tires. What advantages could a spectroscopic chemical analysis provide over physical track investigation? So what well, track analysis, yeah, it's been more than a century, I'm sure that it's been like really worked on. And it just gives you an information on the physics of the event. So the only thing they do is just like, what's the length of the track? And so to produce such a track from braking, what was the speed and what was the weight of the car? You know, so you get so much out of that. The problem then is just you get the um, anti-lock braking system that just makes it harder. And so to get those traces, And so the thing is, the idea is, can we get some information from whatever residue you have on the track? And so this is just rubber. And this is where the idea started. So that was really about trying to use the old evidence, not just the length, but like picking it up from the road and analyzing it. So Chemical analysis for the evidence um, has been used, and the idea we have is really about glass. I mean, when you think about glass in forensics, this is really how it's used. It's just, we do the chemical analysis of it, then we can tell you if two pieces of glass are from the same part. So here, that was kind of the idea. It's just like, let's do the chemical analysis of it, and can we say which tire it was from? This is where I think it's really complementary. We'll, there's no point in trying to replace track analysis. It's really giving it more information. So we're talking about LIBS, laser-induced breakdown spectroscopy, and the process that you've, you've introduced in a published paper, you describe the process that you're deploying in this work. Now, even in laboratory settings, you've described it as as complicated as it is fun, and, and I'm going to call you on that. Can you walk us through uh, what you mean by that and the nuts and bolts of the process? Sure. So, I mean, this is the point of science, right? In doing research, it's complicated and it's fun. The thing is, especially when you work in a forensic contest, everything starts to be complicated in a way that you need to make sure it's going to work if you want to go up to the point of being in court and being used. So the different steps that really we're working on is really from, I mean, it's new, like no one has done that. So this is where I, when I say it was complicated, it's really about sampling and then preparing for the analysis. But uh, most of it is really, how is that reproducible? So how is that representative of the tires? And just, there's like thousands and millions of tires, you know, in the world right now. So it's just like, so when we consider the population of all the tires that could be on the scene, it's just are we sure that we won't have like errors that we think it's a different tire, but in fact, it's the same tire or vice versa. Uh, so it needs a lot, a lot of work and a lot of data analysis. And then once we're going to be sure of that, then the thing is, let's try to get accepted by the community 
and to try to be certified. And that requires an extra step of showing that, yes, the analysis we do is very, very reproducible and you can trust us. So once you have, a, once you have like an analysis done, then you can trust it. This is really, I think, the most complicated part of it is to go to that point. And it can take years and even like a decade or something. But every technique needs to go there once you approach, you know, like the criminal justice aspect of it. So this is where it's fun because it forces us to be that precise and that reproducible. I'm an analytical person. So that's the thing. That's yeah. why I like that. So let's, let's, I'll, I'll give you a, um, a theoretical here. I'll give you a, a potential situation. There is a, an accident and it's a potential crime scene and you're called, you're deployed. There's a tire or there's chemical analysis to be done. Can you sort of walk us through step one, step two, step three, if you were to use this process uh, in a real world situation? One thing would be first that the highway patrol, like a traffic homicide team would do their job in a way that is looking at the tracks because this is something first that's been done forever and they go very quick at it. But at the same time, what we can do is then already sample the tire track. And so sample the, the rubber that's left on the road because this is something like if you're lucky and it's it's sunny and there's no wind and something like that, then you're good. But as soon as you have like wind and like rain, the evidence starts to go away. So you need to be as fast as you can, like collecting this. And once you have that, like you collect, take it to the lab, and then that would be the chemical analysis being done. So first they'd be separating from whatever would be the road material. So if you have asphalt, if you have concrete, and then having just your rubber, and then uh, there are like two cases too. It's just like either the car is still there that we think made the accident. And so then you can compare really one with the other. Or the other is just like, well, you do the analysis and you look at a database. And then you have an idea of the model. You have an idea of maybe the just the brand of the model. It's just like that's going to depend on how much material you can get. It's, it's a rough description right yeah right now. but that's uh that's really the idea how it is usually when you do chemical analysis right so so to be clear you're not wheeling out the the uh spectrometer out to the highway you're not pulling it behind you just the way you, you know if you've watched an episode of forensic files you're not bringing out the mass spectrometer or the gas chromatograph to the scene this is in fact happening in a laboratory setting with all the the necessary controls okay very good as far as far as it is right now yeah it's okay. just I wish we could, but one step at a time, let's say. Yeah, one step at a time. So forensic spectroscopy, it's also deployed, obviously, for other crime scene applications, soil analysis, material composition, and many different types or methods of spectroscopy are needed to accommodate such a number of different applications. Can you shed some light on the process of matching the application to the type of spectroscopy? You know, we're talking about LIBS here, but you know, LIBS versus NIR spectroscopy versus PCRS versus FTIR. You know, I'm curious how the application finds its match with the type of spectroscopy. Well, I would turn the question around. It's just like, what spectroscopy do you match to the evidence or the application? Because when you have an evidence or you have an application, something that you want to measure and this is the thing that is always very hard to make people understand is that to apply a spectroscopy, uh, you need to know what you want to measure. 
And so it's not like, uh, yeah, like you were saying, like CSI or whatever, you have like the, the old box that's going to give you all the answers. <laughs> right. uh, so the thing is, let's say you're talking about soil. What do you want to measure in the soil? If you're talking about like you have a piece of tape and you want to measure what it is, just like do you want the molecular aspect of it? Do you want the elemental aspect of it? And so that's why, depending on what you want to measure, you're going to have a different panel of spectroscopies you want to use. And so this is why I think like the, the spectroscopy community has been really good in the last like decade. I think it's just really teaching people this. It's just like, we're not just push button and give you an answer. It's really applying to what you want to measure. So LIPS, for instance, is good at providing elemental signatures. So it's a, you have an atomic picture of the uh, sample you have. There is no way you can get the same information as an FTIR would give you or an NIR or a Raman or anything else. So LIPS is one of those very few elemental analysis techniques. If you want to have this elemental composition, soil is a very good example because there's so many um, oxides and, and, and so many like elements that are, you don't really need to know like the molecular aspect of it then that's a good aspect and that's a good technique to use it. I don't talk about like analysis of soil in general, but then for example, LIPS has been evaluated for glass analysis, like the way it is now, like glass is a good example of what technique do you want to use? You know, like refractive index has been the go-to technique in forensics. And so then there are like, there's an instrument that's like the one that everybody wants to use. And, but as its limitation and then elemental analysis was necessary and so this is why we went like to um, evaluate lips and even like icpms xrf this type of things where it provides elemental analysis so yeah so to answer your question like kind of like quickly it's just like the process to match is just what do i want to measure so certainly our, our guests and any listener, not our guests, you're our guest, but any listener can theorize, conceptualize a situation um, in their head where this type of application could be useful and, dare I say, critical. But there's great potential for this particular application to pair with other, not just spectroscopies, but other forensic techniques. Um, when you're designing an application, testing an application, putting it through the paces, uh, you know, are you... Are you thinking about how can this pair with other, you know, maybe pre-existing or, or forthcoming methods that can really um, innovate um, crime scene investigation? Uh, always. And so uh, this, is, this is the way you need to think about a technique that you want to create if you want it to survive in this world. You cannot just like be cocky and say, I'm going to replace what's been done so far. You need to build on what's been existing. And everybody will tell you, if something has been working, why should I change it? What should I do something else? And so when we create or develop something, just like what are the needs? It's just what's been lacking so far. And like we're talking in the first question, it's just like track analysis has been working forever. Just like what else can I bring? And then when we talk to the Florida Highway Patrol a couple of weeks ago, they were like, oh my God, yes, that would be so helpful if you can give us this information because, yeah, we're lacking this sometimes in court. And so we always look at what's been done, what can we do? And so 
Another aspect, another type of applications, for instance, when I'm working in my group is anthropology. So if you're in the field and you're like, you see bones and teeth and whatever, that's like an old scene. Well, there's some applications they're really into. This field is really into field applications. So it's just like, okay, what, what are you looking for? And so, so far they've been using XRF, so X-ray fluorescence, because it's portable. It's been in the field forever. But then we said like, hey, lips can help you there because there are some elements you cannot do. There's like, we can do so much more than what XRF can do, but I don't want to replace XRF. You have it, it's working, that's great. But I can give you another option. And so this is the way we're thinking about it. It's always about adding some options and information. So that's very interesting. Your answers clearly make it clear that you are a, a tried and true spectroscopist. There's no doubt. The work that you're doing, is, it has its roots in the lab with spectroscopy. But with this work, obviously, one of the fascinating dynamics is that you're, you're bringing in law enforcement, crime scene investigators, other forensic scientists. Uh, how would you characterize those relationships? Like with this three fields that you're talking about. So, okay, so you have the law enforcement, the crime scene investigators, and the forensic scientists. And here, I really think that there's like collaboration that needs to be done, especially to know the needs. Like, we, you can be a scientist in the lab and just create things that will never be used ever. And then on the other side, you have sometimes the CSI, but it's just going to be there. It's like, I wish I had this. But if they never talk together, that's going to be a problem. So nothing's going to go forward. And then law enforcement is a good way to think about, I need this in the field, but honestly, I don't have the scientific background to run like a full thing in the field. So if you want me to use something, it needs to be like push button and very quick. That's why like law enforcement, and we've seen that like, like very recently, that's like all those field tests for drugs and whatever is very, very quick. And you have like the chemical aspects of it. So you have like those like color tests and stuff like that. And then you have like all the Raman and IR community is trying to bring field portable systems. Like, hey, I can give you more information, maybe more reliable information to know like what type of powder and for the drugs, for instance. So it's really this, just like, oh, law enforcement as there's color tests and whatever they can do like to check right there. But then instead of going to the lab, now the technology allows them like, hey, I give you this little box. You can really know if it's cocaine or not. And you can even know what it's been cut with. I think it's really those discussions. And that's why like conferences where you can have law enforcement and CSI and faculty, like really forensic centers to do research. They can all talk together. This is really a great thing. And that's Lately, in, in like being at NCFS here at UCF, this is a thing that we are still developing and we try to get more and more is to talk to law enforcement, talk to the forensic labs, and talk to the, the CSI. This is really, really important. And I think the best, the, the best actors for such a collaboration are going to be universities because we have the students and students are the ones going in all of them. And so, for example, to do an internship, either they do an internship with law enforcement or CSI or forensic lab. And so we can bring all of this together thanks to our students. And I think this is the, the great point there. 
Matthew Baudelaire joins us. He's uh, speaking with us from the National Center for Forensic Science, University of Central Florida's NCFS. And that's interesting because this technology is new. The, the application, excuse me, that, that we're talking about here today, tire chemical analysis is new. Uh, and you touched on a meeting with the Florida Highway Patrol earlier. What has the reception been to this new technology? Because it's not something that's going to be immediately understood. It's brand new. But is there a sense of eagerness to test something like this out? So they were really excited by the idea. Then after, we haven't talked much about the technique itself. Uh, for them, they'll be, okay, uh, let's say that this is a new type of evidence that can be taken from the scene, then I'm all for it. So uh, just they don't really want to know how it works. They just want to help so far. So they want to say, okay, show us that it can be useful. And What's very important for them is just like, can you do the match between the tire and the skin mark that it made? So they're really, really into this. They want to help. And in fact, that was uh, last week, uh, last Tuesday, we went to one of their uh, training and they had like one car driving at 70 miles per hour, braking, just like plenty of smoke and everything. That was super cool. And um, then they said, okay, have fun. Like, collect as much as you want from the skin mark. And while they were training people and measuring them and doing the track analysis, I was so surprised to see law enforcement being so open already and very, very excited about new applications and new ways of analyzing trace, uh, trace evidence. You could imagine sometimes they say, oh, no, we've been doing our thing just like, don't come here. It's just like, I don't want to do new things. There are some institutions like that. But honestly, the Florida Highway Patrol has been like one of the most helpful like set of people I've seen in my life. UCF Creole, for our purposes here, it's one of the most dynamic optics and photonics ecosystems in the country. And you've talked about the importance of students not only in the work, but in carrying it forward. And we talk about Rochester, Tucson, uh, other, other clusters um, not in, in our country, here in the U.S. Uh, mm-hmm. Each cluster is a little different, but there are overlaps in terms of culture. My question for you is, what is it like to work in such a focused, dedicated optics and photonics culture? And, and within that, how does the increased possibility for collaboration support your research? Yeah, so I was at Creole for seven years, and that was really something that defined my vision of science and research because it's so, this is kind of weird. It's so focused on ticks and photonics, but at the same time, it's, they are ready to be applied to anything in the world. I mean, there's optics and photonics in anything we touch today. So the thing is being there in a culture of content, technological development, being like so close to the industry and seeing so many startups and like as soon as something is created in the lab, someone wants to make a, just having a startup and trying to bring it into the industry. That was something that I didn't even know. I mean, I was just out of my PhD in France and I arrived here in the US. I arrived at Creole in the photonics industry and I'm just like, wow, this is like, this is what research should be. It's just like, we think of something, we show it in the lab, we bring it into the field and into the the industry. Really, that's, especially being a spectroscopist, this is really what defined the way I think spectroscopy. That is, sometimes you think that it's going to be so hard to try an idea, but 
unity on top of your game, knowing what's available in the industry and what's commercially available. And being in Creole, that was something that I was always pushing myself and the students I was working with to know. You need to know what's up there. You, because if you don't, then you're going to waste your time in trying to reproduce something that you can just buy. Then you're going to look like a fool. It's just like, well, yeah, this thing has been like five years with this available. Well, you're like trying to reproduce that. So really now I think it that way. It's just like what's there. And especially now moving because I moved in the chemistry department, I see that very often or it's a more, let's say it's less, it's less active in the um, instrumentation development because this is an older community. But still, it's still very active, but it's active in the companies. The labs themselves, we don't do as much. So this is like, there's kind of a disconnect that happens, but I try to bring that back because having all these photonics friends that I have from my time at Creole, Once you've seen it. Just like, okay, let's right now. It's just like, I try to bring them into chemistry and they are very excited too because now they don't just talk to like a laser jock you know it's just like oh yeah great it's just you understand what i mean but now i want to apply it now i know the needs and so this is really where students love it because then it's just like oh i don't do just chemistry i have an idea of what's happening up there and even students uh like i have one phd student right now who managed to come to my group is a physicist he learned about optics in new jersey and there was a friend of mine that taught him his laser class, said, if you want to do spectroscopy and chemistry, then talk to Matthew. And then he joined the chemistry as a student and now he's doing his PhD and, that's, and he's the guy who's doing the tire analysis. So you see, this is optics. For me, it's really a thing that you have a different mindset and especially spectroscopist. I think we have a different mindset. I always say that we're a big mix of engineers and optics uh, researchers and uh, chemists and physicists because you need to know everything about it and once you have this communion between all those aspects i think you can do anywhere you can go anywhere and do anything you want i think uh, anyone familiar with the society of applied spectroscopy would agree with you it's really a diverse group not only in terms of its members but in terms of its applications uh, and you personally your work with not just uh, libs but plasma uh, even has been expansive and in addition to your current work you've applied yourself to, to food monitoring spectroscopy for food monitoring that's a very relevant topic uh, especially with ramen applications um, mm -hmm. biosensing can you tell us about some of your favorite areas of research? And the second part of that question, what your uh, future holds here? No, like being a faculty is just like so great because I can focus <laughs> on what I want. Yeah, so uh, I have really like two other areas of research in my group uh, besides the tires. And this is the anthropology that I was telling you about like a little bit earlier. That um, when I say anthropology, we can go with medicine a little bit. And I really love this because, I mean, there's like applications and that's very important. And then there's another one that's a bit more exotic, that is uh, pollen analysis. So there's like this aspect of me, I, I love like nature and all, it's just like then pollen analysis uh, was kind of exotic for me. And I always wanted to do that as soon as I arrived in chemistry. And so um, the anthropology side, um, 
that was really about um, can I help with field instrumentation, like I was telling you. It took time like to find someone with a crazy mind like mine. And so, like, yeah, let's try this, like, right there. And finally found him. And so in um, at USF in Tampa, and then we're going to start, we've started, like, already, but we're going to start, like, expanding the research with uh, body farms and just, like, having, like, a lot of samples to work with. It sounds a little bit creepy, but uh, that's, um, that's really one thing that's been exciting for me. But then all the work you do for anthropology, you can think about it for medicine so we're working with the college of medicine to try to do hair analysis and um and so we've done finger nails analysis and stuff like that the other one with the, the pollen has been something yeah for five six years that i wanted to do and i finally found like the right people the right students and we even go beyond just spectroscopy um learn so much about what a pollen grain is really how it's used in forensics and we even do DNA analysis. We just go like full speed on that. And I really, that's, I think for me, that's really the future is there. It's trying to find those new areas that nobody's thought about before. Tires, like everybody was like, yeah, yeah, it's been done, whatever. So don't go there. Okay, challenge accepted. I'm going to go there. And then anthropology, pollen analysis. I think there is one of the things I want to do for the future and already started, but then after it's databases and databases of spectra or whatever chemical signature, DNA signatures, and database is another topic because when we say we need to be reproducible, well, if you want to create databases, you need, you need to be like the most reproducible and general as possible because everybody has different instrumentation. And so being able to be applied in every lab but going to use your uh, database is another challenge. And so that's where my future holds, I think. Fascinating applications. You know, we have here at Photonics Media, we, we've, we've skirted, I would say, pollen investigation. It was a flow cytometry application in mm-hmm. our, our coverage of yeah. it. Spectroscopy, that would be something a little bit different, and that's interesting. Matthew Bodola has been our guest. He joins us from the um, Orlando area in the University of Central Florida's National Center for Forensic Science. He's a 10-year member of the Society of Applied Spectroscopy. Uh, I got one more question for you. Um, I got a sequence of letters here, LA-ICP-MS. What is it and why is it useful? All right. So first, the letters, what they mean. Uh, So LA, laser ablation. ICP is inductively coupled plasma. And MS is mass spectrometry for the purpose of this podcast, I'm sure yeah, you're excited about the first letter and like <laughs> laser. And so the idea is, well, ICPMS has been on for uh, a long time. And so what it is, just like you digest a sample, put it as a liquid, run it through a torch and do the mass spectrometry of whatever goes out of this torch. So you measure the mass of all the elements that or in your sample. The thing is, sometimes it's impossible. Really, I mean, it's not impossible, but it's just like it's very hard to turn your solid into a liquid. All right. So, very hard to digest. So, then the laser people arrived. And so, like, oh, but I can create, like, I can just like focus on it and just like make laser ablation. 
And then you push that into your torch and you don't need to have the liquid and you don't need to have all this. And that was the idea that was developed, laser ablation ICPMS. And so that's really important. And in forensics, this has become the uh, main uh, thing for glass analysis. So glass is a pain to digest because those are like uh, silicates. You need to have HF to do the digestion. Nobody wants to deal with HF because it's an acid you want to deal with. So lasers came to the rescue and then we still managed to do ICPMS for that. Sometimes you want even to do special maps or so chemical maps. And so the laser, your raster scan the laser, like five micron by five micron at a time. And then you can get all the elemental analysis of each of these spots and you can create. So there are like a lot of research that's been done, like brain mapping. Medicine loves it. And medicine is just to provide so much more information by doing LACPMS or even LIPS than just doing the histology analysis, you know? So that's why lasers always come to the rescue at one point. And so LACPMS is really like a wonderful technique that we, we even do here in the lab. Excellent. It's a much better explanation than my just rattling off uh, seven letters. So thank you for clarifying. Uh, and thank you for being on with us. Matthew Baudelaire, tenure member of the Society of Applied Spectroscopy, University of Central Florida National Center for Forensic Science. Appreciate you being here, Matthew. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I really appreciate it being here. Yeah. With any great imaging technique come bottlenecks or challenges that practitioners must overcome to optimize their ability to deploy even the highest grade equipment. Reproducibility in microscopy is one such bottleneck that has captivated the bright minds of problem-solving microscopists. Interherence is a high-resolution optical microscopy company based in Erlangen, Germany, and they've made tackling the issue of reproducibility in microscopy part of that core mission. They have the knowledge to do just that. Dr. Pierre Tershman is CEO of Interherence, and he joins us to shed light on the issue of reproducibility in microscopy, among other pertinent topics. Dr. Tershman, thank you for being here. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thanks. So recent work at Interherence has taken aim at resolving complications that arise from, uh, as we mentioned, the inability to control temperatures during the high-resolution microscopy process. Uh, but this is related to a much larger bottleneck, and that's what we talked about in the intro. This is reproducibility in microscopy. Uh, for our listeners, can you just define what that issue is and what we're talking about with reproducibility in microscopy? Sure. Um, reproducibility is, is, is basically key for meaningful results, especially when you look at, well, complex system as biological systems. And additionally, light microscopy itself is a multi-parameter space where you have different, many different knobs and uh, settings that need to be adjusted. And that makes it quite difficult to control, set, and uh, document all these conditions. And uh, this effort is actually recognized quite recently by the microscopy community. There was this CRAWAP initiative formed that we fully endorse. And uh, this, this, this CRAWAP initiative aims to set standards in, these, in this regard. Especially over the past years, there was a strong attention towards standardization of illumination and detection schemes. But uh, we think this, this is a quite important topic, but we think temperature is also quite important. And one should put more focus on temperature too. Especially when you, when you look into high resolution and super resolution studies, 
there, are, there can be strong temperature devi deviations from the set point that you define in your environmental chamber to the actual temperature in your field of view. And this is exactly where we are working at and where we bring, want to bring precision into these, these measurements. So you talk about the solution that you guys have developed. There's a, there's a device component, a mechanical component. What is that solution and what's the device that you, uh, you and your team have developed to assist in that solution? Well, in, uh, at Interherence, we, we exploit micro nanofabrication to very sensitive, simple and highly compact sensor systems on a chip, basically on, on a functional cover slip. And uh, this high sensitivity translates directly into high reproducibility because if you sense right, you can compensate and uh, directly set what, what you want to have. And this is how we, how we set the temperature uh, right in the field of view. Um, and that's also where we see the added value of the company. So our philosophy here is to make it as simple as possible, highly sensitive and keep it compact. And I think these are key, key elements to help reproducibility. And with this solution, with this system, uh, you know, it's not something that you develop right away. You know, it's, it's a process and you go component by component and you, you cross off sort of, you know, bottlenecks, I suppose. Can you sort of walk us through the development of the device and the system you've developed? Yeah, so the, the system itself has quite a long history. So we, as I already mentioned, we encountered the issue with temperature drop in the field of view when using high NA objectives back at the Max Planck Institute in Erlangen. So there we, we, we try to find a way how to actually measure the temperature precisely in the field of view and control it. And that was not straightforward because, you know, you need to bring together quite a lot of different technologies, not only light microscopy, but also thin film technology and make that reproducibility on a chip. And uh, it took us probably two to three years to get the technology running and uh, putting it onto the market. So here at Photonics Media, certainly we, we focus a lot on light sheet, light field microscopy, light microscopy uh, within optical microscopy. But this is a, a wider problem throughout all of microscopy. Is that correct? Well, it is, it is a problem in high resolution studies when you use some principal high numerical aperture objectives in combination with immersion medium like water or oil. In light, micros in, in light sheet microscopy itself, you image larger sample volumes. You don't usually don't use high NA objectives, and there this is this is a different problem. I'd say we we are more focusing on the community that is related to super resolution microscopy and single molecule studies, which is actually a community that is growing, and uh, there's much more and more industrial interest in in, in these kind of studies. What are some of the factors that have led this community not only to form, uh, but to grow? Oh, well, I think every biological process itself depends on molecular interactions. And observing molecules interacting with each other in real time and in realistic or like physiological conditions is of, of great interest to, to not only the scientific community, but also to the industry working on um, well, new drug candidates, biological drug candidates. And that is probably one, one of the driving factors why there's an increased interest in this community. Peter Tirschman is CEO of Interherence. He joins us from Erlingen, Germany. You touched on it a moment ago, but I'm, I'm interested and hopeful that you can go more in depth. The correlation between temperature control and reproducibility. What's the solution your group is developing and, and is bringing to market? Yeah, so biological systems in general depend heavily, heavily on temperature. 
And uh, as already mentioned, there's this danger that the temperature that you have in the field of view is not the temperature that you have set in your environmental chamber. Um, we actually encountered exactly that issue while observing lipid membranes and their phase transitions uh, with a light microscope. And the temperatures for difference that we could observe was actually not only one degree C, it was actually five or seven degrees C. And uh, the basic problem, what it boils down to, is the direct thermal contact of the objective lens with your cover slip. And here, the objective lens can act as a heat sink, sucking the heat out of the sample volume right in the field of view where you look and where you observe the sample. And there, there can be also actually, it can be also the other way around. So if you do confocal imaging or spinning disk imaging, you can have a certain heat, heat power, laser power being dissipated in your sample volume leading to local heating. And this local heating won't be recognized by your environmental chamber. And that's why we were working on a solution that brings uh, reproducibility and actually precision into temperature sensitive studies using high resolution microscopes. Temperature control, it's not the only challenge to reproducibility in microscopy. There, there are others. Phototoxicity, for example. What are some of the other approaches that uh, you and the team at Interherence are deploying to resolve that challenge? So phototoxicity is, is intensely, intensively discussed in the community. And um, in general, we think that one should reduce the complexity of the microscopy systems because reducing the complexity will also allow to increase the reproducibility. Because, uh, well, if, if a non-experienced user is operating a highly complex microscope, he might be overwhelmed by the, by the number of parameters he can set. And it's, it's not only about complexity, but it's also about active feedback. Active feedback in terms of temperature, that you really know the temperature in your field of view, but also maybe active feedback in terms of what, how much light are you depositing into your sample volume? And that is a strategy that we, we try to develop here at Interherence in upcoming products. And um, we think that this will bring a big benefit to the community. You've talked about the community several times now, and, and certainly you've been part of that community um, from the academic side, now from the industry side, and, and throughout sort of the academic side. And one of the things we talk about a lot on the podcast is that dynamic. You know, we talk a lot about it with the um, through the lens of sort of the transfer of technology, but it is an interesting dynamic when you have academia and you have industry and you have even government sometimes working together. Is that the case in this sort of highly skilled microscopy community where you have different influences coming together to, to help find solutions? I mean, is that a fair assessment? Well, we have a very strong collaboration with the local Max Planck Institute and with many other uh, research institutes here in Europe and also in the US. And I think that that is quite beneficial because when you bring a new system to the market, you want to want to have that system tested and the academic uh, academia is quite open to innovation. So people are willing to test new devices, although they might not work as well as you are expecting to work a, de a device to be working from well, a big company. That's why there's there's a huge potential when uh, well, cooperating with industry with academic partners. So Interherence was founded, it was a spin-out company from uh, former students of the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Light. But certainly this year, this past 15-month period, certainly some unique circumstances. Can you describe for us the strange, unprecedented nature of forming and growing a company in 2020? Um, so we actually founded Interherence end of 2019, but we, we, we went public 2020. 
Wahid, uh, our first product was launched in March 2020. Um, we, we were still attending a trade show in San Diego in the US. Uh, when we came back, the, all the borders were closed. That, that was quite remarkable for us because we had no classical means for marketing our products. Um, this was a challenge, but uh, we had good we have good contacts to many customers all around, and the first customers are always the most important ones, and usually they then spread the word. Um, that that is what what we are relying on. On the other hand, uh, the Corona crisis brought uh, biotechnology in general, general into focus. This is actually helping us. So a lot of uh, investment funds uh, and VCs are considering to invest into bio biotechnology as they realize and the whole world is realizing that biotechnology can bring a big value to the whole community, to, to humanity. That's an interesting uh, interesting point you raise because it, it makes a lot of sense, right? Biotech and biophotonic firms would be naturally sort of captivated forcibly by the nature of the pandemic situation. And that's been the case, you're saying. Is that a global uh, trend you're seeing? Yeah, just if you look into recent um, and recent fundraises that were happening in Europe and in, in the US, a tremendous amount of money was going into, uh, well, into funding biotechnology. And uh, that's a trend that probably will continue. And I think the light microscopy community can play a big role in that part because uh, light microscopy is intrinsically non-invasive and you can observe your biomolecules in native conditions. And not many other methods can combine these unique two properties uh, when well, studying biological systems and their dynamics under realistic conditions. We've talked about 2019, 2020, now here we are in 2021. Uh, what comes next for Interherence? Where's the company going? What's next on the radar? And what can we expect from you and your team? Well, we are working on labor-free single molecule detection in native conditions. That is one, one of our big goals that we focus on within the next years. We're currently developing several uh, a new product that will be launched next year. And we are currently securing seed funding for the next products that will be developed. Pierre Churchman is CEO of Interherence. He's joined us on all things photonics from Erling in Germany. Dr. Churchman, thank you for being on with us. Thank you. That does it for this episode of All Things Photonics. Thank you to our engineer, Alan Shepard, and to Joel Williams with the news. Our featured music is courtesy of betterwithmusic.com. Most of all, thank you, our listeners. As always, you can share your thoughts, pitch us ideas, let us know how we're doing. You can reach us at allthingsatphotonics.com. All Things Photonics is available on all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, as well as on our website. Subscribe, never miss an episode. I'm Jake Saltzman. This has been a Photonics Media Production.